2: Hey guys, welcome back to Foul Play with Gemma and Shane. Gemma, it's been over a year, I believe, since you and I have done a podcast together.
3: I know, I'm so excited. And Shane and I are actually on a Zoom so we can see each other and wave and make faces and stuff. But you guys are probably just gonna hear the audio. Yeah. So we, yeah, hi everybody. So we decided that we were gonna get back together again. Shane is actually in his home in Indiana. And I'm in my new home in the state of uh, 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 three syllables. (laughs) So I moved away from Maryland. Too many people (laughs) know where I live. So now I'm living in the woods on a river. And I'm totally happy about that. But it's really good to be back with Shane. And tonight we're going to talk about Shane.
2: The Archdiocese of Baltimore's bankruptcy. Yep. Yeah. And people are probably wondering if they're not up to date Why is the Archdiocese of Baltimore filing bankruptcy, Gemma?
3: So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a timeline. I'm going to try and make it simple because that's the best way I understand it. I'm not left-brained. Abby's the left-brained one. So we're going to go back five years, actually, when the Attorney General of Maryland made an announcement and a press release that they were going to begin an investigation into clergy abuse in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Clergy abuse, for those of you that might not be Catholic, is priests, nuns, brothers, any religious person in the Catholic Church. So with that said, I learned that the Archdiocese of Baltimore was not the whole state of Maryland. Duh, as a teacher, I should have known that. So the center of the state is the Archdiocese of Baltimore, the western part of the state going west and down towards Washington is the Archdiocese of Washington, and the eastern shore where I live now is the Archdiocese of Wilmington. So the Archdiocese of Wilmington, which is in Delaware, actually is responsible for all the Catholic parishes on the eastern shore down on the coast and to Virginia. So the investigation began and the attorney general gave everybody information about how to report abuse. And the process was that if somebody had been abused or knew of an abuser, they would contact the criminal investigator at the attorney general's office. His name was Richard Wolf. We came to know and love that name. And he was the guy that everybody would report to. So for me and for Shane as well, a lot of people didn't know what to do. And they would say like, well, I was abused. What do I do? So I was able to coordinate some of those calls with Richard. Sometimes people wanted me to stay in an email loop with them. But anyway, we made sure that if they wanted to report it, that they were able to report it. And we kept wondering when the the investigation would be over. We told it'd be soon. So the investigation actually went on for four years. Now, to compare Pennsylvania, which was huge, and Josh Shapiro, he was the attorney general, right? That one took two years. So this was twice as long. And we learned at the end of last summer, like a whole year ago, around this time, that the report, that the investigation was coming to an end. So again, we wait, we wait, we wait. We find out in November that the investigation is finished. So now we wait, we wait, we wait. When's it going to come out? And they're like, well, it has to go through this big, long process and different people need to see it. So at the same time, but separate from that, Legislation was brought to the Maryland legislature for the Child Victims Act. It used to be called the Hidden Predator Act. And the gentleman, the legislator who brought that to the House and to the Senate, C.T. Wilson. He had been fighting for this for years. He was abused as a child himself, so this was very important to him. Every year before this, it either didn't happen because of COVID or it got through the Senate but didn't make it through the House. So this year, a lot of us, and I I was so happy that I was able to testify this time. I had some friends in Baltimore that made sure I had transportation up there. So I got to testify, and this year, the Child Victims Act, you'll see CVA as the acronym for it. It was passed. Now, what the Child Victims Act does is it totally eliminates the statute of limitations, and sometimes you might see that written as SOL. It doesn't mean the sun; It means the statute of limitations. And that means that there's no limit on when or how far back somebody can report abuse. So, for example, if somebody was abused when they were 10 years old and they're now 95, they can still get a civil suit for that abuse. If their abuser's dead, they can file a civil suit against the institution for whom the abuser worked. Okay? So this was a huge deal when it passed. Everybody was excited. And then we find out that it will go into effect October 1st, which was seven days ago. So October 1st, everybody was anxiously awaiting the passage. Meanwhile, folks were finding attorneys finding resources, therapists, support system. It was a very, very busy year because not only did the Attorney General's report come out in April, which exposed a lot of the predators and others, but folks needed to be ready to file their suit. So right now, two days before the CVA, the Child Victims Act, was enacted and put into practice, the Archdiocese of Baltimore, big surprise, filed for bankruptcy. So what I've just shared with you is leading up to where we are right now. And I frankly asked Shane to do this like bankruptcy for dummies, mostly because I'm here with him and I have to Understand what he's saying, but I think we all have a lot of questions about it. So write down your questions. And Shane and I are going to be doing a bunch of podcasts together. We're going to cover all different kinds of things. I'm going to turn it back to Shane because he's going to pick it up there. All I can tell you is that the attorneys were ready for this. They told their clients to be ready, but now we have to see what it means. What does bankruptcy mean? And what's the road look like going forward for survivors? So, Shane, take it away.
2: Jim, you did a really good job going through that. And you did an excellent job talking about the Attorney General report. I'm really excited to go over that in a future episode because I know that reading through it and everything they did was just a huge headache and hurtful. And I'm really excited and I'm looking forward to talking about that more. But yeah, as you mentioned, we're going to focus in this episode about the bankruptcy that, that the Archdiocese has done. In a previous episode that we've covered in the series that you and I have been working on for years now for Sister Kathy's series, which is what we've called it, in a previous episode, I want to mention that we had Sean Kane on. He had agreed to let me interview him. And in a previous email, Sean had gotten caught up in a little bit of an email going back and forth with the Archdiocese of Baltimore officials, and the email chain had been released, and that was the first time the public had gotten word of them looking into the possibility of them filing bankruptcy. This was before them announcing it here recently. I believe it may have been about a month ago. He was giving them advice on when they should announce it. Specifically, the reason they were discussing it was because Sean was explaining to them that they should wait to announce it until right before the law takes into effect because the church was trying to do a fundraiser, and they were afraid that when they announced the bankruptcy and how that will be perceived that it would impact people donating, and they didn't want that to happen. So that's why they waited until right before the law went into effect to make sure that they could make the most money from those donations.
3: Shane, was that an email that we would have access to? Because I don't remember seeing
2: it. Sure.
3: So, um, maybe when we're finished tonight, you can post it because I know everybody wants to see what Sean Kane has to say, yeah. right?
2: It was an internal email that Sean Kane had with some officials, and I believe it was the Baltimore Sun. They're the ones that had obtained it and released it. So I'll post a link along with the episode and I'll include it in the show notes as well so that everyone can read it. And I'll send it over to you. But I thought that was really interesting that one of the things that they took into account was how much money that people would not donate. You know, and I just thought that was very interesting and something that we should all take into account as we continue this discussion. But as Jim mentioned, the Archdiocese of Baltimore did file for bankruptcy. Specifically, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Now, we all know that this was due to the number of lawsuits that's going to be coming from the abuse that has been going on within the church. Now, you're probably wondering, what is the difference between Chapter 7 and Chapter 11 bankruptcy? That's going to be what everyone's going to be wondering. And how will that impact the church? I also want to mention really quickly that A little history lesson, there have been 30 other Catholic dioceses, currently in the U.S. that have previously filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy because of this child abuse. So I think that's very important for us to remember going forward that this has happened 30 other times in the U.S. specifically. So can you imagine, like, how many children this is impacting and that each time, you know, this isn't just happening in Maryland— in all those other states, all of those survivors, this is happening to them as well. So I think that's important for not only our listeners to know that these survivors are experiencing this, but they're experiencing this in other states as well. So, specifically, Chapter 11, when a business looks to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy, they're looking to reorganize their business. And how that's different from a Chapter 7 bankruptcy is that Chapter 7 will look to completely liquidate and oftentimes end the business. So basically you're looking at Chapter 7 means the business is no longer profitable, they owe people too much money, they're going to be liquidating all of the assets, any buildings, vehicles, they'd be letting go of all the people that work for them, they'd be shutting operations, And then they would be dividing all of the money between all of the people they owe money to. That's how a Chapter 7 bankruptcy works. That's not what's happening in this case. Chapter 11 looks to reorganize the business. And so what they're looking at doing is how can they reorganize the archdiocese in order to basically settle with these survivors. And that sounds... A little simple, and that's, you know, just the basic terms of what's happening. So, Gemma, because of that simple explanation, what question do you have for me?
3: Okay, so the business is the church, right? Yes. And so— Isn't
2: that what we've it, learned? <laughs> the business I know, is the church. <laughs> really,
3: you're right. It's a business. It's a big business. It is a big business. And it's not a nonprofit, that's for sure. They don't operate um,
2: like that, do they? No,
3: they don't. So guess what I'm hearing you say is that by they're not filing chapter seven, if they did, then the the church would just disappear in Baltimore, right? Right. Everybody would just, okay. Most likely. They, right. Yeah. But this way, they're going to figure out a way where I think they already thought ahead many decades ago about how to protect their assets by putting them... But the big company putting the assets in like smaller, quote, companies, like parishes and organizations, so that it's kind of spread out. And if somebody sues the archdiocese, the archdiocese doesn't literally have that money available to them because they've already put it, let's say they put it in parish A, St. Mary's or St. Shane, Saint Shane's Parish <laughs> or St. Gemma's parish, and it's protected in that parish. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So if we think of Archbishop Keogh High School, if we think yeah. of that one high school, right. what the Archdiocese has done over all of these years is each one of their real estate holdings, so all of the schools, buildings, charities, any property they own. All of those entities, they are all now separate businesses that they have set up. Now, what they have done is although they have set them up all separate, they are the ones that are in complete control of them. So they've set up their own business. So like, for example, if Archbishop Keogh was still standing, the high school, they would set up their own business for it, an LLC or whatever type of business. And then as the person in charge, they would have the Archdiocese of Baltimore being basically the board of the entire entity that is in charge of this business. And how that works is now Archbishop Keough High School now will operate as its own little bubble separate from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and all of their other real estate holdings. And if you were to try to sue the archdiocese or to sue that school or any of the other schools, you would have a very hard time to try to link them all together. And then also, if you sue the archdiocese of Baltimore, they do not have to claim that they own that high school or any of the other real estate holdings because they're all separate businesses and separate real estates. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. So that can also be said with, you know, if they have a really nice church that has a bunch of really nice artwork, if that church is set up as its own business, the archdiocese doesn't have to consider that church being inside of their real estate holdings of the actual archdiocese, even though they're the ones that run the business. You see what I'm saying? So over time, they've set this system up almost expecting that sometime they may get hit with a huge lawsuit, which is if you've been listening or if you've been following along, you'll know that in all of this time when survivors and C.T. Wilson have been trying to pass this law to eliminate the statute of limitations so that survivors can sue their abusers, the one person or the one entity who has always been there to fight the law is who? The Archdiocese of Baltimore. So all of this way, they are the one person standing up trying to prevent it from happening, but they're also doing their work trying to put all of these little bubbles in place just in case if the law falls. And so throughout all, all this process, this huge machine, this huge business that they've built, you know, this is the oldest archdiocese. This is the very first one. They're very proud of it. So they have a lot of resources, a lot of real estate, a lot of money. So they're trying to protect what they have. Just like when Sean Kane's email went out, you can tell they're trying to protect what they have. So they can say thoughts and prayers all day long, but they're always trying to protect what they have. And survivors be damned is basically what we see and what we hear. And I believe that's how survivors are feeling. When all of their action continually shows everyone this.
3: So even though we're on the right side, the just side, the people on the other side have built in like a mechanism to prevent people from getting what they should be given freely. What is an LLC? What does that mean, Shane?
2: An LLC is a limited liability company. And so that was actually created many years ago for mostly small businesses. So basically, if you think of, for example, like a small farmer, or maybe, Gemma, let's say you like to paint pottery. You wanted to open up your own little pottery store, and you wanted to invite people in to paint pottery. Well, you could open up a little LLC, and people could come in and buy pottery. The perk of having an LLC is if someone came in and bought your pottery, but they didn't like it, or they found it offensive or whatever the case may be, they ended up trying to sue you. Maybe they ordered something, they thought it was something, and you told them it was green and it was blue, whatever the reason might be, they sued you. Well, they could only sue you. That pottery business, they could not sue you and try to take your home or your car, or any of your other personal property that's not related to your pottery business. That's what limited liability meant. And it it was meant for these small businesses. Right. So that's what the church has tried to use to set up these small bubbles. So I know at one point in time, Jim, you made a comment because when they sold Archbishop Keough High School, they sold it to, what company was that?
3: They sold it to Pepsi Cola. Yeah tore the building down. Well, we know why they tore it down, but they tore the building down and they sold the property for $18 million. And I forget how many acres it is. I mean, it's not like hundreds of acres, but I guess everybody wants to know, well, there's $18 million. If the churches paid out $13 million in settlements, why can't they take the money from that school and give the whole thing to survivors Well, at the beginning, they could have, but it went into one of their little businesses. It's protected, right? Or it's spread out somewhere.
2: Yeah. So it it would be really hard to probably find out where that money went to, first of all. It could be still held within a small business fund of some kind that's still separate from the fund that they, you know, that, that is withheld within the archdiocese. One of the things that, We also have to consider here is that in their filing, when the archdiocese filed for bankruptcy, they listed their assets to be as low as $100 million, could be up to $500 million. That's a huge, wide, open margin. You know, very weird, but whatever. Another weird thing that I found when they filed for their bankruptcy is Lori, who we will love to name, Lori, who is the archbishop, he said in the filing that they believe that they will have between 1,000 to 6,000 creditors that will file to try to come after them. Now, Gemma, about how many people were named in the report—
3: now, by creditors, you mean survivors of abuse, right? Yeah, that's, or anybody who is looking to sue the archdiocese. That is correct. That's how right. many that they're okay. expecting
2: to pay out. Okay, right?
3: okay. Yeah. Well, the attorney general's report covered about 160 clergy members, from rounding it up, and 600 minors. But we know that's the tip of the iceberg, right? Because just since The report was finished in November, but it wasn't released until April, and it wasn't released until last week with redactions that the newspapers had already discovered. The newspapers, the Banner and the Sun papers had already determined from the information surrounding what was in the narrative who the church leaders were, A, B, C, D, and E, and who the Unnamed clergy members were even one nun who would be like in her hundreds old who abused a child 80 years ago. So the newspaper figured all that out. But to name to say, not name, but have 600 children or 600 people came forward, that was just in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. That doesn't right. count Wilmington and Washington. And that is only the people who reported. And were documented in the report. So just since April, I personally know of one law firm who's representing hundreds of survivors of clergy abuse. And I think that's probably very similar all over the state. And I guess surrounding states, if it happened, you know, in a neighboring state. But I guess what irritates me the most, and maybe I don't know, maybe I'm missing something. Is there any any defense in place for the good guys? Is there anything that you know of that we can do either as a group, as individuals, or that attorneys can do to turn this around, to not allow it to go
2: through? And is that what a bankruptcy court is for? That's a good question. Before I answer that, I want to make a comment. So you had mentioned that there were about 600 names mentioned in the report. 600.
3: No. Clergy about 160. Right. They don't name any of the any of any the survivors, survivors.
2: right. But, but they name about they, 600 they, survivors. They that number, 600. Right. So one of the questions that I would like to just bring up to keep on everyone's mind is if there are 600 survivors of the archdiocese of Baltimore that we are aware of at least in the report, something that, to keep in mind of is Lori believed there are between 1,000 and 6,000. And it's also something else to keep in mind is when a survivor tries to file their lawsuit, whether it be through this bankruptcy proceeding or a normal lawsuit, that does not mean that they do not have a burden of proof. That does not mean that just because you filed, that doesn't mean that you're going to immediately get in on it. So if anyone has that thought, let's dispel that right now, The Archdiocese, we know, will fight them to the end. They have always been, we have to have some type of validation. So for Lori to believe that there will be 1,000 to 6,000 survivors, I think that is something that that we should just note. That there could be up to 6,000 people. So I think that's something that we should note. Another thing that I think is important is, just as a reference, In New York State, the diocese there, and specifically this is Rockville Center, they have paid over $90 million in legal fees to do this process over three years. So just for them to go through this process, it's not a cheap thing to do. So when Lori or anyone from the archdiocese tries to use the argument, you know, we're trying to do this for the better of the survivor, to try to— Get them the most money and still survive. That's a crock of bull because if that was their main goal, they could have two options. The first would be to have a class action, they could allow survivors to come up and do a class action against them. The second is to try to do a mass settlement. That way, they don't have to pay a huge amount of law fees and a huge amount of court fees. So they're going to be paying at least tens of millions of dollars just in court and legal fees alone just to go through this process. So it's not going to be a cheap process like how they are trying to make it appear to be. So I just want to bring in some actual facts into that.
3: Shane, do you have any idea? You mentioned before that you said you noted that there were 30 other dioceses in the country that have gone through this. Has anybody been able, I hate to say the word, but like outsmart the diocese that they're suing and to actually get remediation for the survivors?
2: I don't think that any of them were able to get the archdiocese in that area out of bankruptcy, if that's what you're asking, to prevent them from going through the bankruptcy. The unfortunate thing is, is in those scenarios, it seems like They were allowed to do it. Now, there are state-specific requirements and there are federal requirements for bankruptcies. So Maryland could have its own rules. Now, I do know that there were some lawsuits that were brought against specific schools here recently where they tried to go after specific schools where survivors were abused at in addition to the archdiocese. And in those lawsuits currently, the judges in the lawsuits have denied them, saying that because the archdiocese is in charge of the business and they are in bankruptcy, they cannot sue that business. So that business is protected. Now, I believe, and again, I'm not an attorney, but I believe they're able to appeal that decision and they probably will and I'm assuming that other lawyers will try to go after individual schools as well. But in this specific case, of course, this we're very early in this. That specific case, I believe, was just two days ago. But that is what the archdiocese wanted to happen. That's why they've put all of their entities into separate bubbles. All of their real estate is held within these separate bubbles because they're hoping that they can get through this without having to attach all of their assets separately.
3: Well, so I have a whole bunch of questions. I hope they're the same ones our listeners are wondering about. The first one is, was there any benefit to the Archdiocese doing this two days before the Child Victims Act was put into action? Did they gain anything from that? I'm acting like you're the exporter on right. all of this, but you know
2: I think they were just trying to beat the law before anyone could actually sue them. Of course, I think that was the case. I know that they waited to the last minute, as I mentioned, because of Sean Kane's email that was released between him and the Archdiocese of Baltimore. The reason they were going to wait to the last minute to file bankruptcy was because they wanted to make sure it didn't hurt their donations until the last minute, because they knew that it would look bad on them. So that's what their email chains had mentioned, that they knew that it would look bad on them, and they wanted to prevent that for as long as they could.
3: Okay, here's my next question. What about survivors who are suing non-Catholic institutions? For example, there are the Boy Scouts had to file bankruptcy too. I mean, I re- saw a documentary, Scouts Honor, this week. That wow. was an amazing story. But anyway, what if they are suing a public school? And I know they are. Can that public school system file for bankruptcy? Or are they, do you know? I don't, I mean, it's not that many. Sure. But I do know that Baltimore County Public School, Baltimore City Public School, yeah. the Hickey School, which was a school for juvenile delinquents and a lot of abuse happened there. That school was being sued. So what's your just perspective or thoughts on those situations?
2: Yeah. So I'll preference all this to say I'm not an attorney. <laughs> so you know we'll we'll say that. My guess would be that if they think that they will be held liable, they'll just file for bankruptcy, probably chapter eleven. That way they can continue operating then they during that Chapter 11 process, what ends up happening is there's an automatic stay on those lawsuits, which means there is a pause on anyone who is trying to sue. Once that happens, once there's a pause, there's a period of time that, and this is what's going to happen here in our case as well for the Archdiocese. There's going to be a pause, and there will be a, review of assets that the bankruptcy court will be performing. And that is when the Archdiocese of Baltimore will have to go through all of its assets. And again, this is going to be a weird scenario because the Archdiocese of Baltimore is going to argue that they do not have to claim all of these separate real estate holdings And survivors are going to argue, you know, they are going to be called their creditors because they're going to owe them money. So the survivors are going to argue through their attorneys that they should have to claim that because they run it, you know, and a lot of them were hurt or abused in those buildings. So that is going to be their argument and it's going to be up to the court to decide ultimately how it goes, what buildings, or if any, can be included in the assets of the archdiocese. Once that's done, and during that process, the court will set a certain time frame of when lawsuits can come in against the archdiocese to be included in the bankruptcy. And they're going to say, if you are wanting to be included in the lawsuit, you have to file it within this period of time so I'll make up a time frame. Let's say it is a month. I have no idea how long it is. I'm making that time frame up. Let's say it's a 30-day window. I have no idea.
3: I think it's 90. It, I think that's might what be. I read. But yeah. yeah, I
2: think. So we'll go with but 90 then. So the court will come up with a date and they will give an end date. After that end date, no more people can claim against the archdiocese for prior abuse. So what that means, ultimately, is all of those years that the archdiocese has been fighting against this law, the Child's Victim Act, trying to prevent the statute of limitations from going into effect, this bankruptcy that they're doing will have that effect on them. Because after that 90 days, no more previous lawsuits can be filed against them. So what we know of is survivors, Like we have to give them the ability to come forward on their own time. Because not only do they have to come forward to themselves and their family, but to file a lawsuit like this and be a part of it, they have to come forward to the world, to the archdiocese. And Gemma, you have told me before that you have been there with survivors in the process And in the room, when they've had to deal with the archdiocese, why don't you mention how that process goes and what that's like, so people can have an understanding?
3: Yeah. Well, I do a lot of advocacy work for survivors, and I think they think I'm like Dr. Lawyer, Indian chief. I'm none of those, but I do have a lot of good connections, and I can help them understand how to make a report, a police report, or report to the attorney general, and I can facilitate that with them. And I've actually done it with them, like physically and by Zoom with Richard Wolf, or by phone, because they're terrified. And for a lot of them, Richard and I might be the only people that know what happened to them. And I was going to say this later, but I, if you are a survivor and you're listening to this and you have not shared this with somebody in your family or somebody you trust, please do it tonight or tomorrow. You cannot go through this by yourself because it's going to be a long road and now it's going to be bumpier. So don't back down. Don't back down. We're all there with you and we're on the right side of justice. But we may not get exactly what you wanted, but you are going to get some justice and you are going to get a settlement. The settlements that I attended were with Uh, Survivors of Joseph Maskell. And it was a scripted circus. The judge was a retired judge who was very objective, but the archdiocesan attorneys sit on the opposite side of a rectangular table facing the client. I sat on one side of the client, the client's attorney sat on the other side, and it was like they were talking heads. And the child victim's advocate sits between the archdiocesan attorneys opposite the client. I was appalled. And when the client asked them to leave to discuss the numbers with me, they said, this is highly unusual. They didn't want me there. The judge said, it's fine. He knew me. And the client just wanted to know, once the attorney got paid, would she have enough to pay her bills? And we did the math and we figured that out. It's not easy. And with that said, unfortunately, because now the church has filed bankruptcy, even the Keough and the Maskell clients, there were, I think there were 25, who received settlements about five years ago and were under duress and felt like they were being sort of in a bad position, they can't get those reversed now. And I do know Teresa Lancaster was brave enough to say she was going to try and get those reversed. But now with this bankruptcy issue, that's not going to happen because that would mean... Those survivors could come back and ask for more money, and of course they're going to get the door slammed in their face right. The biggest amount that any of the mass survivors got anyway was fifty thousand dollars, and the attorneys get a third of that, so it's not an easy process, but people like Shane and I are here for you i don't We don't know what else to do except tell you that we support you and if you need to talk to somebody. You can message us, and we will try and find you a support system. But I'm saying that is the most important thing right now, because you're going to go through a whole lot of different emotions. It's going to be scary. It's going to be hopeful. It's going to be, this is bullshit. This is going to be F the church. It's going to be all of that. And you're righteous and feeling that way. But I've talked to so many of you, and I know how painful this is. And then after what you did, you went public. You gave your name, you stood, you showed your face everywhere, and now you're getting slapped. And do you think Lori will even agree to come on this program with us or to talk to me personally or to Shane personally? No. The man is a coward. The man needs to resign. So I don't know, you know, and again, remember, there's a big difference between religion and faith. Your faith is what you believe in whether it's the sun and the moon or Jesus Christ or Yahweh or whatever, it's not the same as organized religion. What we're upset with is the organized Catholic church because it's a big business, and that's they're out to make money, right. and they're making a lot of money. I guess, Shane, is there any way—it's almost like the Vatican is the supreme court <laughs> of the church— Do you know if there's any way for folks to, like, go beyond the archdiocese and appeal to the Vatican? Or is it going to run into the same thing?
2: You know what's funny is I feel like the Vatican has done something similar to what the archdiocese has done, where the Vatican operates as such a huge business that they have set all of these separate businesses called archdioceses. So that all of them operate separately. That way, if one of them is a bad boy, they can be dealt with separately and with that country's laws separately. That way, the big, you know, honcho isn't held responsible for the actions of the one. So you kind of see the playbook that has been played out over all of this time. I mean, we know that the resources and the assets of the archdiocese of baltimore is way more than the hundred million dollars that Lori has mentioned you know you see the beautiful buildings and the beautiful artwork and all of the real estate that the archdiocese of baltimore operates within maryland and you just wonder how are they going to get away with saying that they could have as low as a hundred million dollars in assets that's disgusting Absolutely disgusting.
3: Yeah. Shane, can we maybe brainstorm right now and, and ask your listeners to do the same, some things that we as individuals and groups can do? Like one thing I I do think would be significant would be not to give a penny to the church. And a lot of people feel pressured. A lot of people still go to Mass, and I'm not putting that down. But the money that you're putting in the basket that's not going to help survivors. I know that some, I've heard that somebody might start a movement where they get people to use a red envelope or a different colored envelope and to write survivor's fund on the envelope, but we're not guaranteed that that's going to go into a survivor's fund. Right. Another thing would be like companies like Pepsi Cola suppose they gave 18 million dollars to survivors and gave it to and said worked something out with the attorneys and said this is what we paid for this i mean it sounds crazy but they have 18 million dollars you know i'll buy more pepsi but i'm not going to Mass, and i'm not making a donation i uh, i deal direct i don't give to like you know even catholic charities there's overhead involved in that right church it's a chunk of that before it goes anywhere. What are some other things that you can think of that we
2: could do? I think, in all honesty, the problem lies at the head of the business. And if they want to fix the problem, the bankruptcy court during the reorganization, I feel like, needs to remove or pressure, and along with all of the Catholics who are a part of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, needs to pressure Lori to step down. You know, I'm not Catholic. I have no say or sway in any of this. But my ultimate feeling is that someone new needs to be in charge. And for a long time in all of this, the men who have been in charge of the Archdiocese in Baltimore have gone along with what's been happening. So I think... Until a woman is put in charge of that position, which will be, you know, I think a lot of people will maybe laugh at that because there's still some problems with the Catholic Church and putting women in places of power, I guess. But until they put a woman in charge, I think that ultimately there has been so many men who have failed in that position and who have allowed children to be abused repetitively. And I think, you know, not only be abused, but these are children who were a part of the Catholic system. And I see how important religion is to people and how spiritualism and religion can be important to people who go through things, that sometimes religion can be something that's very important to people. So not only was the Archdiocese of Baltimore Not only did they go along with this type of abuse of children, it was children in your own system. You know, and some may argue that you also have to take into account all of the children they help through charities. Well, with one hand, they can help a child who's hungry. But in the other hand, they've helped abuse, sexually abuse all of these children. That doesn't make a right. And so what I would like to see is leadership replaced with new leadership who people feel that they can trust. And, you know, I was raised by my grandmother, and I trust her. And my grandma was a very strong woman, and I really like strong women like that. And personalities like you and Jean and Teresa, all of those women, all the survivors that I've met, all of those strong women. So I would like to see a woman in charge— I think that would be a really good thing to see. So that's a really long winded answer, but I don't think that the church, the archdiocese of Baltimore as is now can be trusted. You know, if there's a red envelope, I don't think that money's going to go where they're going to say it's going to go. Imagine how much money they have put into petitioning against the child's victim act over all of these years. And one of yeah. the things that they have argued during this bankruptcy filing is that even the people who go to court to petition for them against laws that protect children, like the Child mm-hmm. Victims Act, right. all of that money is also being shielded from their assets. Why would that be? You know, like, it's still a part of the archdiocese. Right. So it's just funny to me that they've created all of these bubbles to protect as much as they can. And it's just this huge business. when they want to say thoughts, concerns, and prayers all day long. And, you know, this is about the survivors. We want to make sure through this bankruptcy that survivors get the most that they can. And we don't want to blah, 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 blah. Don't come with me at that. There are much better ways to do this. We know that the reason is so that you can end... The amount of people who can claim. You want to make your own statute of limitation within your organization, within your business. That's exactly what this is all about. And another important thing that I cannot stress enough is that through this bankruptcy process, there is going to be no discovery. So if I was a victim and I was to sue them. During that process, I would be able to get access to information to prove this happened. Because of this bankruptcy, that's not going to happen. So they're also going to not have that discovery process. So they're going to continue to cover up and shield all of these predators that they have gone through and protected through all this time. And again, in a future episode, Gemma and I will talk about the attorney general report that they tried and petitioned so hard to redact which was really funny because initially they were preaching high and dry about let it come out and let it be clean and let's just air Yeah, transparent was the word they wanted to say. And then we realized that they had a separate little arm that they had that they thought no one would find out. And that separate arm is the entity that filed to try to prevent the report from coming out. And then the separate arm also filed to have it redacted. And they thought no one would catch that that was actually the Archdiocese of Baltimore. (laughs) Ha ha ha. So, so
3: Shane, first of all, nobody's going to laugh at you about putting a woman in charge. And I just, there's always room for levity. So I'm going to jump in here and say, do you think they would allow a fallen Catholic and her buddy who's not Catholic at all to take over? And, um, make it right
2: in all honesty
3: if we we ran i I thought we'd win
2: you know they should have a board full of people like you and me a couple of survivors who have been through the process and some catholics and
3: yeah they have an advisory board no i'm
2: talking about being the people in charge
3: You know, instead of the archbishop, rather than a dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That way, the decisions being handed down, because, you know, I understand this is a religion, but they're such a powerful religion. And I understand the importance of Catholic people in Maryland, you know, wanting their organization to be ran by Catholics. I understand that. But on the other hand, look what they've done with it. So, again, I think that. If they want to remain going, something has to change. And I understand the importance of people's religion, but what they're doing now isn't working. and It's not been working. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery holding up? Mine's been draining lately, consumed by the darkness of true crime tales. But amidst the shadows, it's crucial to remember to prioritize our mental well-being. Just like unraveling a twisted plot, therapy helps me untangle the knots in my mind. It's about gaining clarity, finding strength, and reclaiming control over your life. Considering therapy, BetterHelp offers a lifeline in the darkness. It's completely online, giving you the freedom to seek help in your own terms. And with a simple questionnaire, you can be matched with a licensed therapist who understands your unique struggles. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Foul today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Foul, F-O-U-L.
0: I do have a question
3: that, or a comment that you might be able to address. If an abuser is living and a person wants to sue them, in order for it to be a criminal offense, they would have to have evidence of the abuse, correct? So in other words, they would need to have had a rape kit done and the DNA would match the abuser or... They would have to have somebody admit to it in order for it to be a felony and for somebody to go to jail.
2: Well, if an individual tries to sue their abuser, it would be a civil lawsuit.
3: Right. But it could be a criminal suit if they have evidence.
2: The criminal suit would have to be charged by the prosecutor. Okay. An individual cannot sue criminally. That's attorney.
3: Right. Right. Okay. So... Criminal suits are brought by the state, like the state versus that's right
2: somebody. yeah okay,
3: and that could happen if somebody shows that there's evidence of a felony,
2: correct yes, or it could be a misdemeanor too, technically, but there's a higher standard of proof mm-hmm. in criminal cases than right. civil cases.
3: Okay.
2: And in civil cases, there's a monetary amount that is awarded, and it is a lower standard. It's a preponderance of the evidence. So, more right, likely like than a not, lot of evidence, yeah. Yeah. So, you still have okay. to prove it. So, just like Should in I... OJ Simpson's case, mm-hmm. the victim's family in that case, although OJ was found innocent in his criminal trial, the victim's family was able to sue him civilly and won. Mm-hmm. So, that could be a possibility, I guess. But again, their abuser would have to be living rich. still,
3: and rich, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, they would have to have the assets. I but mean, you also
3: somebody sue a priest that's living, right? And one,
2: yeah, uh, they and, may
3: not get anything. And you right? have to
2: have the evidence, you know. So you have to have on hand the evidence to show it happened. Right. So, yeah, and it's going to be expensive. So that's another thing to keep in mind is that it's not going to be cheap.
3: Right. Well, fortunately, the attorneys who are representing survivor clients are the ones that I have interacted with are of the utmost standard. They have a lot of integrity and they are not taking a penny unless they win. But right now, if things stay as they are, and I guess it's inevitable that they will, it looks like almost like communism where everybody's gonna get the same. There's gonna be a finite amount of money. Right. Let's say there's a hundred clients and there's a hundred dollars. Everybody's gonna get a dollar.
2: Right. That's yeah.
3: oversimplified, but that's basically what's gonna happen.
2: Yeah, what will happen is during the bankruptcy process. The court will allow for an agreement between the archdiocese and its creditors, which will be the survivors. Mm -hmm. There will be an agreement that will need to be come up with between the two parties. And the archdiocese will want a trust fund to be created that they can pay into. And survivors will be paid out of that over time is what they all want to happen. And the archdiocese will want to not to have to liquidate their assets. And again, this is going to be the the assets that they are claiming on paper that the archdiocese's name is, you know, already on, not their separate bubbles. So they're going to try to protect what they have and not try to sell off any of their buildings, artwork, any of those things.
3: So is there any reason that large corporations that support the survivors can't financially support them by starting private funds for compensation? I mean, you know, like, let's just say Pepsi said, well, we're going to put $18 million in a, I I don't know, in a survivor's fund for anybody who was abused at Archbishop Keough High School. Yeah. That's a pretty simple
2: move. Yeah.
3: We're going to match what we paid. Right. Because you gave us a new factory. You know, Pepsi's never going to go away. (laughs) Right. and But is there any reason, I mean, Pepsi, come on. Is there any reason why companies can't do that? Or is that showing favoritism?
2: No, I mean, they could do it. They could just set up their own nonprofit and allow that to happen. That's definitely a possibility. now. Why would they do it? you know,
3: because it's the right thing to do,
2: Yes, it is the right thing to do, so Pepsi, and if it you're would listening, make
3: people buy more Pepsi yes, I'd buy, I'd buy more i buy I would Pepsi buy Pepsi yeah, yes, I mean, I feel like there are like things, not grassroots, but things that we, as a country of good people can do to fight this mess, yeah, because you know what's showing now. The archdiocese is very transparent right now. And I'm getting this picture of this man in a bubble, you know, like a one of those snow globe things. You know, there's Archbishop Laurie and there's all these little bubbles floating around and they're all protected. But boy, is it transparent. So if anything good comes out of this, it's going to be to show how evil this whole system is and that it's not the way Jesus would have lived, it's not the way he lived, and it's not the way he treated people.
2: Right.
3: So we can't not do something about that.
2: Yeah, and I think another important thing that we need to bring up is we've mentioned the Child Victims Act. The Archdiocese has appealed the act. So in another wing, they have brought that act to Maryland's Supreme Court And so Maryland Supreme Court still has to decide on the legality of that law. So, you know, again, the archdiocese for many years have been fighting for survivors of abuse to not be allowed to come forward at any point in time after their abuse. They just feel like there should be a statute of limitation. And this law, the Child Victims Act, eliminates the statute of limitation And then now that it's passed, they've appealed it. So it's gone to the Maryland Supreme Court. They're trying to argue against it. And of course, one of their arguments during this entire process has been, it shouldn't be passed because we will have to file bankruptcy. Now, it's interesting to me that they would always say that's the reason it shouldn't be passed because in my mind, that's not a legal argument. Because that is them, in my mind, admitting fault that they will be found liable because of all of the children that they have allowed to be abused under their watch. Because they know that so many have been abused that they won't be able to pay for it. So just think about that for a moment, that they have been willing to fight the law for this many years— They're bringing it to Maryland Supreme Court. They're going to spend tens of millions of dollars to do this bankruptcy. I wonder how much the Archbishop, His Royal Highness Laurie, has spent on this entire process, you know? And this entire time, he could have just sat down at the table, figured out how much money it will take to come up with a settlement of some kind Because ultimately, what we know of, when someone is a survivor of abuse as children, it's a hard life. And they need therapy. Therapy is expensive. And oftentimes, not only do you have a hard life, you have periods of times when you can't work or you drop out of school. So you struggle financially and you struggle in your entire life. So these people need some type of help. And the idea that they have spent all of this money to fight this problem that they have, right? And their idea now is always trying to flip the table and spin it to, we're always trying to do what's best for the survivor victim is what they always say. And thoughts and prayers. And none of it makes sense to me. If that was really the case, they wouldn't have been fighting the law this entire time. Their right. side all this time would have been, you're right, Maryland, if you are in Maryland and you are abused as a child, you should be allowed to come forward at any time in your life and go after your abuser and everyone who was responsible for hiding that abuser and allowing them to continue to abuse other children. That mm-hmm. should have been their stance from the very beginning. And they, because they that been wasn't... Heroes. Yeah. and be, been heroes. Yeah. And because it wasn't... This is the mess we're in.
3: Yeah. Tell us what to do and we will do it the best we can. A couple of things you said reminded me of something. And one is that, because we're probably coming close to the end here, but for any survivors that are listening, if you have not yet reported to the attorney general's office, please do that. If you need help. I want you to private message me on Facebook because I will stay up all night if I have to getting that information to you. If you are in the Diocese of Washington or the Diocese of Wilmington, those investigations have started and Richard Wolf has made a specific point to tell me to encourage those of you that are from those schools and parishes to please come forward. If you have come forward and you don't have an attorney Please vet your attorneys carefully and find somebody that you trust because we're not going away. We're not attorneys. We're going to be supporting you as advocates, but you really need an attorney to get through this and somebody that will do it without taking your money unless they win something for you. Those are the best ones to have. And the other thing is therapy, as Shane mentioned, therapy is expensive. The Sister Kathy Sesnick Survivors Fund provides funds for therapy. And I'm not affiliated with it anymore, but you can contact the fund at the Sister Kathy Sesnick Survivors Fund webpage. I believe the Facebook page, which has turned into more of a discussion group, is a private page. But if you want to apply for funds, you can also contact Michelle Stanton S-T-A-N. T-O-N or Christine Centifonte, um on their Facebook pages and find out what you should do. They're both on the board and they can help you with that.
2: I also want to add to that, that if you would like to donate to sister Kathy's fund, you can do that as well. So we will put a link to their fund in our show notes. All of that money will help survivors as well.
3: Reach out to us, reach out to us. Let us know what you're thinking. Ask questions and make comments. And then when we record again, we can address your questions, concerns, or your discoveries. If you have an aha moment or you're from another state where, you know, there was a bankruptcy issue and something was worked out to the advantage of survivors, the survivors and their advocates are our only priority. Our priority is not the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Right. If I were a practicing Catholic, I would not be practicing. I would not go. I would not give money. And I would write a nice letter to say why I'm not doing either. Because it's pressure, pressure, pressure to be part of their fundraising. And they put your name up on a wall. And if you give enough alms, you get a green dot. And if you don't give any, you get a red dot. It's, it's, excuse me, effing ridiculous. And it's wrong. It's not. Jesus, it's wrong. We love you and we care about you. So please let us hear from you. So listen, share it, please. Send it to your attorney. Send it to people that don't understand the bankruptcy and stop giving money to the Catholic Church.
2: Right. One of the things I want to add before we go is just a little food for thought before we start our next episode. Just to lead into it a little bit. Gemma, we kind of started this whole process and it was kind of just a way years ago now as a voice, uh, as a podcast, just for survivors to continue to tell what happened and to continue to talk about what happened to Sister Kathy. And it's kind of become much larger than that. We thought maybe we would have a couple episodes and look what's happened. You know, continue on with the years and here we're returning it. But I wanted to add that Through the discussion today, you kind of see all the tricks and all the hard work and the millions of dollars that the Archdiocese is putting forward to continue to hide all of the work that they have done to cover up the abuse that's happened. And so the question that I want to leave listeners is, if they're willing to put this much money and effort into silencing survivors and hiding and covering up all of this abuse, what were they willing to do in 1969 when a single woman learned of the abuse and started asking questions?